I have a vivid memory of when I was three years old. The trailer park where we lived had a swimming pool. In ground, pristine water with light blue paint, complete with a deep end and a diving board, eight feet at its deepest and three feet at its shallowest. It was a good one. The park owner would later fill it with concrete because of insurance costs and liabilities. But it was there when I was three, when I was not tall enough to touch the shallowest part. I loved going to the pool. I clung to my dad like a barnacle as he took me in. He would try to coax me loose with this vice grip of my tiny arms so I could learn to put my face in the water. I refused to do this. I hated the thought of going underwater. I would scream bloody murder when he would try to coax me. And when left to my own devices on the pool steps going in, I would change my vice grip to the pool's edge and inch my way down the side stretching downward with all my might, toes pointed agonizingly, hoping to touch concrete, holding my breath as practice above water, but I never had the courage to go underneath. I was three when we were there. My dad was talking to Bill, the park manager, poolside, while I dangled my feet over at the deep end. I don't remember what happened next. One second... I was on the side of the pool, and the next, I was in the pool. I was sinking to the bottom, fully conscious, eyes open, mouth closed. We cannot read today's well-known story from the gospel without adequate framing. Just before this, John the Baptist died, gruesomely so. His severed head paraded on a platter. John was Jesus' cousin, his mentor, the one who knew him from the womb. They've all just heard about it right before this story. They've also all heard about Herod thinking that Jesus is the reincarnation of John, that Jesus and his followers are next. Jesus needs to get away from it. Is he running from his death? Well, in Matthew, Jesus goes off alone to pray twice. Here, in this story, and right before he is actually betrayed and captured. Maybe he felt them closing in. I don't know. Maybe he needed a good cry. The disciples got into the boat, and they headed to the other side of the sea without him. The disciples had worked all day for those crowds, all those people with so much need. They came and were fed, miraculous, more people than they could imagine, Exhaustion weighs upon them now. Jesus' crowds had kept increasing, but the number of disciples to serve them stayed at 12. And the trip across the Sea of Galilee is about eight miles if you go for the longest point. But in the middle, a storm kicks up and keeps them at sea all night long, fighting the lash, bailing water, pitched about in the howling blackness. Then, as morning is breaking, they think they see a ghost in the tempest. Makes sense. Maybe they had died at sea. It looked like Jesus. Had their fears of his execution been realized? Was it a ghost? Jesus is walking on the water, but they discover that he is no ghost. He's alive. 
This is another part of the framing for the story. The Hebrew people were not a seafaring people. They weren't fans of water. The Sea of Galilee, for goodness sake, is really just a large lake, roughly the same area as our Lake Wachita. Big, but not the sea. The sea, for them, is an archetypal force of chaos. In Genesis, when creation is made, the waters are parted into waters above the earth and waters under the earth, with the bubble of order in the middle where life is made possible. Israel flees from Egypt by passing through a sea held back. You should hear echoes of the creation story. When the earth is terrible enough to be destroyed, a flood is what does it, reintroducing chaos into the entire world. And after Jesus, when the writer of Revelation depicts this earth that has been redeemed and remade, there's this funny detail in there that says, the sea will be no more. No more chaos. No more monsters emerging from the deep. No drowning. The force that makes life and order possible is God, and God alone. People talk about Peter a lot with this story, and like he's heralded as some partial but fallen hero when we tell this story, as a lesson to us, maybe. He starts out right, but he doubts and falters and begins to sink. Jesus grabs him, hoists him into the boat, scolds him a little, and calms the storm down. The disciples now have all seen the truth, though. For the first time, they worship Jesus as God because he can order the chaos. I think maybe they saw another truth, too, that human beings can't order anything. My dad describes the scene at the pool. He turns his back to me at the poolside for one second, hears the splash, and turns back to nothing. I'm gone, and he runs to the edge. He sees me at the bottom of it, and he dives in and scoops me up, kicking with all the might of a terrified father to get me up to the surface. We emerge, and I'm alive. And I'm not only alive, I'm overjoyed. My first words above the water was a shriek of glee. Dad, I held my breath. Dad, did you see? I held my breath. And I wasn't afraid from that day forward. I don't know why we sink, but we all do. It happens to all of us. We all have our waters, our forces that undo a good creation, named and unnamed. Sometimes we inherit them. Sometimes we find them of our own accord. This is not a story of triumph in our gospel today. This is not a platitudinous message about having faith in dark times. It's a story bookended by grief and set up against a backdrop of chaos. It's a story about not being able to rise above it. We are not untouched by chaos. Flannery O'Connor described the spirit of our age as nihilism. In her short story, Good Country People, the character of Mrs. Hopewell is charmed by the simplistic phrases of a plain-spoken salesman. Well, other people have their opinions too, is what Mrs. Hopewell says. That's her mantra. Other people have their opinions too. By story's end, O'Connor makes us revile this 
simple and oft-repeated phrase, following it to the gruesome end that awaits those who hold destructive opinions without considering their full implications. She thinks church is the only way that you can do this. I watched my friends march in Charlottesville yesterday, pictures of them linking arms while an armed militia, militia, not cops, stared them down. They were a fragile-looking band of diverse unity, totally submerged in the anger and violence of a group of white supremacists. It was a picture that was like something repeated from a history book, now swapped out with my classmates' faces. It reminded us that our dreams of nihilism, that our easy and self-congratulatory phrases, end in destruction. This is not a sermon that pretends that things are or have ever been the way that they ought to be. The storms of life are our oldest stories. This is a story about how God has reached out to find us in it, to prepare us for it, who went through it with us. We move through those waters to get here, to this place, to this altar. Baptism takes you under. We sit even our tiny children at the side of the pool and put them through what we will all go through, submersion into the chaos, something like an inoculation of the death that awaits everyone, so that when the waters do come over, and they do, we are not lost. But we come out of it with something to say, and it is not one among very many polite opinions, but Christ crucified, world without end. That's why you're here, I think. You're here because you believed in level ground, even if it cost you your own elevation. You're here because in the face of a militia, you laid down arms and took up a cross. You're here because the storms came and you shirked the safety of the boat and headed toward where you saw Jesus. You're here because... You did it and found yourself in over your head and want for just one minute to end polite conversations and pick up the hearty and harrowing language of sin and mercy and redemption. You're here because you needed help and God reached out. What will you do with that now?